the Word of God, dripping with holiness. Let's pray. Lord, these descriptions, perhaps because we're separated from them by so much time, are astonishing to us in terms of both their detail and the things that they describe. As we, your people, living many years after these things were given to your people as commands, living in the new covenant, as we reflect on these, we ask you today to keep us wise, to guide us by your Spirit, to guide us by sound principles in your Word about how we should reflect on these things in our own lives. What do they have to say to us? And what did you do for your people in redeeming us? So guide us today as we consider this theme of your holiness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things which we inherited from Lauren's parents and from the estate of Lauren's parents is a little black resin Labrador. And that little black resin Labrador used to sit outside of their front door. And it has a bone in its mouth. And hanging from the bone is a little sign. It's about yay big. And on the little sign, it says, welcome. And it's very cute. And if you turn the sign to the other side, now you know this, you know what it says because you have seen these before. It says on the flip side, go away. There are mixed messages in this little bone and on the sign that is attached to it. And you can be excused for sometimes thinking about the tabernacle or thinking about the temple as it will be later in Scripture and wondering whether or not the sign that was outside the temple said, welcome, or go away. You can be excused for being confused as to whether or not God is herein offering an invitation, come and worship me here at the tabernacle or later here at the temple, or whether he is essentially establishing a no-go zone, a no-trespassing zone. And if you come in here, you will get burned. Highly radioactive zone within the middle of the camp. These apparently contradictory messages, and certainly you you even got a flavor for them in the passages that I read for us, the explanation for them is, in fact, the holiness of God. And that's what our theme is today. That's what we're going to consider today, how the tabernacle is communicating this. And we're going to follow the exact same structure that we have followed in the past four sermons about this. That is to say, we're going to spend time looking at this idea of the holiness of God communicated by the tabernacle, first and foremost, to Israel. What did it mean for them? The sermon will be weighted then towards this first half for Israel. And then secondly, we look at how this then was fulfilled in Christ and what does it mean for us. So, first of all, for Israel. As many theologians have noted about the tabernacle, it is the reestablishment by God of holy ground on the earth. Holy ground is a great phrase. I find the phrase holy ground to be poetic in and of itself, and it is full of possibilities, literary possibilities that you can explore as you consider this idea of holy ground. When we think 
of the phrase holy ground, perhaps our mind naturally goes back to an earlier story in the book of Exodus where this phrase is spoken for the first time. And that, of course, is when Moses was taking care of his father-in-law's sheep, and he went to the wilderness, to the wilderness that's called Mount Horeb there in Exodus, but it is the same mountain of God, which is to say Mount Sinai as we've come to it here. And of course, there he encounters the burning bush, and as he approaches it, he hears the words from the burning bush, from the Lord, take off your sandals, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And of course, even as now, not only Moses, but the people with him all assemble at Sinai, as God has commanded them to do, that is still true about Sinai, about this place wherein God is manifesting himself to the people. It's holy ground. And therefore, we have seen earlier in the book the gradations that take place in terms of who can go up to the mountain and on what points are various people allowed access to this mountain of God. But to actually understand this idea of holy ground and God establishing it here in Sinai, we need to actually go back to the book of Genesis and reflect on this from the book of Genesis. The first story that I'd like to take us to, by way of recollection, you don't have to turn to it, is when Jacob is fleeing the land at the plan of his mother to avoid his brother. And as he is journeying, journeying, he spends the night in a particular place. And you recall the story. In the dream, Jacob sees the vision of the angels ascending and descending on a ladder connecting heaven and earth. And as he awakens from that dream, that vision, he says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How awesome is this place? This is none other, he says, than the house of God, the gate of heaven. Jacob's interpretation of this particular place where he has seen this vision is that this spot is the house of God. Now that is, if we can say it, that's, that's Exodus language about the dwelling place of God, and Jacob claims it for this particular place. It's Sinai language. But the key to understanding holy ground is actually found in the very beginning of the book of Genesis. Because there we see holy ground established where the holy God dwelt with his holy people. Of course, the name of that holy ground was Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were no longer fit for dwelling on holy ground. They no longer had suitable clothing for dwelling on holy ground. They were no longer clothed in holiness or clothed in righteousness, as the Scriptures later will talk about it. And in fact, this holy ground that God had established, Eden, where He dwelt with His creation, the man and the woman, the ground itself is cursed as a result of the unholiness of Adam and Eve. And so the ground that was holy ground becomes itself unholy ground. 
it becomes cursed ground in the same way that the ground was cursed, uh, that Adam and Eve were also cursed. So now the ground shares in that cursing as well. It's unsuitable for them, and it is unsuitable for a dwelling place of the holy God. So Adam and Eve are removed from the place originally set up by God as holy ground. The holiness of God must separate them from this place, lest it be the very holiness of God that ends up destroying them. They could not dwell in the presence of a holy God, and therefore what God does is he puts the cherubim there to stand guard at that particular place, preventing access to the tree of life. For had the unholy man gone on holy ground to partake of the holy tree of life, it would have sealed our fate. It would have sealed our doom. And so the cherubim are established to say, you're no longer fit to come in here. The atmospheric conditions have changed, you have changed, and you cannot come into this place anymore. Now, biblically speaking, we're now in the book of Exodus, right? Biblically speaking, we are one book away from Genesis. That doesn't seem to us to be very far. But for a moment, let, let the simple fact that we're talking about thousands of thousands of years that have gone by between the story of the fall and now this story of God establishing the tabernacle amongst his people, perhaps when we try to conceive of the span of that time, we can see how momentous a step it is by God to have taken to now reestablish holy ground in the midst of the earth. For the past thousands of years, only a few people, I mean, you can count them on one, maybe two hands, have ever even tasted or experienced anything like dwelling with God on holy ground. No one's experienced that. And now God says, I'm going to dwell in the midst of this nation. Holiness is barely even mentioned in the book of Genesis. One time, one time, seventh day the Lord rested and made it holy. Whereas holiness in Exodus becomes the central theme for the people of God. God is reestablishing something that was lost, holy ground in the midst of this nation. God is bridging a gap that had been created by sin. He's healing the rift, and yet as God heals this rift, as he provides an access point to holy ground, an incredibly dangerous situation has now developed, has now been created. Namely, that you've got the holiness of God in the midst of a people who are incredibly sinful. And as much as we might like to say, well, that's a good thing, it's good that the presence of God is back with his people, it's a dangerous thing. And in just a few weeks, we'll shift our attention to the story of the golden calf and the judgment of God and the mercy of God that is in that story. We'll see just how dangerous it is that God would set up this dwelling in the midst of man, that God would be this close to man. Yes, there's a, a bridge that has been established, but it, 
It's a rope bridge across the Grand Canyon. I've hiked in some places over some gorges, and I'm afraid of heights. And there have been very, no rope bridges, but there have been very narrow bridges where my kids have scooted across, happy as they can be, and where I've had to swallow hard, look up, not look down, and just walk across as fast as I could. A little rope bridge has been created by God to holy ground. And thus, because the situation is so dangerous, we have all of the specificity that is contained in the law of God describing how do you do this? How do you approach this? You have got to be extremely careful or you'll be cut off or you will die because of this holiness of God. Now, I haven't done much of this, but let's just take a moment. And again, I suggest that you go online and you can find online quickly a a, a diagram of the temple and what it looked like, the tabernacle and the temple. But what we have in the tabernacle, described for us in the passages that we read, is in the center of it, the most holy place, or the place that we often call the holy of holies. The most holy place is perfect in its dimensions. It is 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. It is a perfect square. And in the midst of that most holy of places, you find the Ark of the Covenant with the testimonies that are inside of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat that is put over the top of it. And all of the most precious materials that were used in the construction of the tabernacle are found in that central point. So as you move outward from center, now I'm saying center, it's not quite center because of the design of it, Uh, but as you move outward from that heart of the tabernacle, the materials are less and less costly, the dimensions are less and less perfect. So you've got the most holy place in the center, and of course guarding the way to the most holy place are both the cherubim that you find over top of the Ark of the Covenant, that's the mercy seat that is placed on the top of it, and then the cherubim that are embroidered into the fabric, the veil that separates the most holy place from the holy place. As you come outside the holy place, the dimensions shift from a square to a rectangle that is attached to the square, roughly 30 by 15 by 15 feet high again. And then as you move out from there, you have the courtyard itself, the courtyard around it. And so you've got gradations of holiness that, with, that exist within this tabernacle, but they are gradations of separation, of inaccessibility. So people can come to a certain point, and then they cannot go any further than that. Into the holy place, the priest can go, but they cannot go further than that. Into the most holy place, writing, reading from the book of Hebrew, only the high priest can go, and he only can go once per year. I think I've said this before, but let me just do it one more time quickly. What you've got is basically Sinai turned on its edge. Okay, so remember as the people came to Sinai, you had the people around the base of the mountain. The priests then went up a certain way, but only Moses went to the very top. Now take that same principle, turn it on its side, and there you've got the principles that are involved in the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle thus reminds us both of Sinai and, of course, It reminds us exactly of the same time as Eden. Why? Because Eden is the place of original perfection, the place of the holy ground of God that is now cut off and guarded by cherubim. The dwelling place of God separated 
by these creatures created by God who declare His holiness. It's a fencing off. It, and, and let's be clear why this is a fencing off. This is a fencing off not because God is afraid of catching something from this diseased, sinful people who are around Him. Rather, what God is concerned about is if you come in bearing that disease of sin, you'll die. You will be destroyed because my holiness cannot take that unholiness and your unholiness cannot deal with my holiness. You'll be destroyed if you come into this presence. But this story that we've got recorded for us in Exodus is not merely a story of the holiness of God in the midst of the sinful mankind. Rather, the story is one of God's grace extending His holiness. Not only only is God in the business of being holy, but He is in the business of making things holy. This is good news. God takes cursed ground. And now, He reestablishes holy ground. God, more significantly perhaps for us than Him taking cursed ground and making it holy, is the fact that God takes a cursed humanity, and out of a cursed humanity, He is making a holy people, a holy nation. God is making things holy. Now, there are so many passages that we could turn to here. Let me just give us a couple and, and drawing on the ones that I've, I've printed out for us in here. This idea that Aaron, and, and, and then others, but Aaron, as he goes in to minister, has this front, this plate on the front of the turban that says, holy to the Lord. And you read of the purpose of it. I'm, I'm going to read that verse again, verse 38. That's the second of the readings that are in your uh, bulletin. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things. Now, now I want you to think about that. Guilt from holy things? How do you get guilt from holy things? I mean, I, I figure out how you get guilt from unholy things, but how do you get guilt from holy things? He shall bear any of the guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So, picture this, what's happening here. The Israelites are making contributions, and they will be, of course, throughout the history of the tabernacle and then the temple, making contributions, bringing offerings to this particular place, all sorts of offerings that we won't go into the types of them here. But this particular plate on the forehead of of Aaron has the effect of saying, listen, as people make these holy contributions, these holy offerings to the Lord, the reality is that they're not always holy. Why? Because they come from sinful people. They come from people like you and me. And so just as, don't mean to pick on you, but just as today, we sang some hymns. And perhaps you sang them heartily, but perhaps you thought to yourself, hey, my voice sounds pretty good. Or perhaps you started to get distracted and you started thinking, you know, I, I, I don't, about anything. You're still singing the words, but you're distracted. Perhaps the offering plate came around today and you begrudgingly said, here it goes again, week after week. I'm putting it in. Or perhaps you just thoughtlessly put in 
Well, well, those are gifts that you are giving to the Lord that are supposed to be good gifts that you're giving to the Lord, but because they come from you, because they come from me, they're actually sinful. The holy offerings are sinful because they come from us. And so what this thing on the front of his, uh, of his turban does is it has the ability, it has the ability to take the weak and, and soiled offerings of the Israelites and to make them to be, in the phraseology of the verse, acceptable before the Lord. It has the ability to take lame offerings given with mixed motives from distracted minds, from sinful people, and make them acceptable before God. That's an extension of holiness. God extending holiness out, not just being holy in and of himself. Well, okay, so how do the priests themselves become holy? Well, we read that. I won't go into that in depth in, uh, in verse 29. They become holy by sacrifice, by blood on the ear, by blood on the thumb, by blood on the big toe, by oil, by washings. Well, how does the tabernacle as a whole itself become holy? How do the instruments themselves become holy? Well, by the anointing oil and by the incense. So, I, I tried to highlight this as I read it for us today in the uh, Exodus 30 passage here. I just want to read again, verse 29. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. That is all the stuff. That they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. We talk about infectious diseases, and many times, and this is certainly true in the Pentateuch itself, whoever touches something will become unclean. You know those passages? There are so many of those passages. Well, here is the reverse of that. Whoever touches, whatever touches, holy, consecrated things that have been sanctified, that is to say made holy, by this anointing oil becomes holy. It is infectious holiness. That's pretty extraordinary. Now, if your engineering mind, forget your engineering mind, if, you're just, if your mind is saying, it doesn't make any sense, it doesn't make any sense, how could it be that blood and incense and oil, regardless of what the proportions were, regardless of how perfect the materials were, how, how good it smelled, how could any of that actually do this? Well, I, I would say to you, good question. Good question. It's actually exactly the question that the writer of Hebrews asks as well about all this stuff, and what he says in response to us is, it really didn't. It was just a symbol. It's a tantalizing visual poem. They're symbols. It didn't really actually affect the cleansing of those things, but it symbolized the cleansing of exactly those things. But wonder of wonders, not only, and I'm going to do this briefly because I'll, I'll touch more on this next week, but not only has the Lord reestablished holy ground, but albeit for one priest one time a year, God has opened up the way between the cherubim to allow one man the opportunity to get back in. The opportunity to get back in to what was lost. The most holy place 
to go in and to see the glory of the Lord. It's a small opening. It's a little teeny tiny opening through which one person gets to go through. But it's there, and it's a little sign that says a human is now back in the presence of God, in the very holiness of God. And it is the seed of the hope that exists for us as well. What does this have to do with Jesus? Veiled in flesh, and we'll be briefer here in these parts. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He comes not with the hanging veils of the tabernacle, but with the veil of his flesh. And though he did not look glorious, he was holy. In fact, what Jesus comes as is the tabernacle pulled inside out. The heart of it, the mercy seat, now exposed. And now not just in one place, not walled off from people, but rather walking around in the midst of people is the holiness of God in Jesus Christ. And when he died, you know this, right? The curtain of the temple, the veil, was torn from top to bottom. The grand statement by God, forget the symbol, forget the type, forget the shadow, forget the copy, because the reality has come. That to which all of this, all of the tabernacle pointed, has arrived. The true, holy, innocent high priest, the blood which can truly forgive sin, the blood which not only is sprinkled on the exterior, but the blood which has the ability to cleanse the conscience. The obedience which can make us holy. He the tabernacle. He the temple. He the giver of the law. He the fulfillment of the law has come. And as the writer of Hebrews tells us, he went into the most holy place. Not into the most holy place, which is to say the tabernacle or for the, the temple that had been built with hands, but rather the one that wasn't built with hands which is to say the one which was the original, the dwelling place of God for all eternity. He offers himself to forgive and to make people holy. Jesus becomes that which the things in the tabernacle were. The things in the tabernacle were holy in and of themselves, and as you approach them, they had the ability to make things holy. The woman sees Jesus passing by, and she reaches out, works her way through just to touch him, and she's cleansed and healed. Who touched me? (laughs) How does that all work? Well, Well, that's because the tabernacle's walking amongst them. You touch the things in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle makes them holy if it doesn't kill you. She comes with a heart, with a desire for cleansing, the critical means by which you come to the tabernacle, and as a result of that touch, you touch something, you become pure. And so for Jesus, 
the way and through Jesus. The way is open. The Father accepts what he offers for all who will believe in him. For us, what then is the response to the holiness of God in the tabernacle and in Jesus? Now, if you've been paying close attention over the past four weeks, I've had the exact same application the past four weeks. The first application is to receive. To receive. You. You are the thing that is precious to the Lord. You're the build. You're the object of the craftsmanship. You're the one to whom the truth was revealed. Receive it. Receive has been the first, and the second has been to practice. And I've put it in that order every time to try and say to us and trying to remind us that it has to be that priority. We are, first of all, recipients of these things. Now, today I'm going to reverse the order. And the second point is most important. And I wanted to end with it because I'm just trying to change it up to show us what is most important. So, what's this have to say to us? First, the sub-point. This is the sub-point. Every New Testament writer comes to this point in reflection on the tabernacle, in reflection on the temple and the building that God is doing in the church. Every one of them comes to this point. Pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. The response to this holiness that is seen within the tabernacle and in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is do this. Be holy, because the Lord your God is holy. He's not kidding around with the giving of his law. Don't play with him by playing with sin. God is in the business of creating a holy people, a holy people in thought, word, and deed. And so, when the Apostle Paul recognizes that the church in Corinth is struggling with a number of sexual sins... He goes back through Scripture, and what he says to them is, remember, you are the tabernacle. He brings out tabernacle theology to deal with the very practical issue of sexual sin within the Corinthian church. He doesn't say to them, listen, you've got to go get the utensils out of the tabernacle, and touching the utensils will make you clean. He doesn't say anything about the details of it. He says, get the message. Get the message of the Spirit of God dwelling within the tabernacle. You are the tabernacle of God, the body of Christ. Be holy, because the Spirit of God dwells within you. Throughout the Scripture, this is the call practically speaking, ethically speaking, from the holiness that we see in the tabernacle. How seriously does God take it? Well, if you mess up, let's just go back to Israel for a moment. If you mess up with the incense or with the oil, if you misuse it, if you say, hey, I, you know what, I got another idea. What if we mixed this, this, and this? That would smell great. And you try and bring that in or a strange fire, you will be cut off from the people. If you think, gee, this, this, uh, this incense smells really good, I think I'll use some of it for perfume. Well, you're guilty. You're guilty of taking the sacred things that God has established for His worship and using them for your own pleasure. 
You'd be cut off. That's how seriously God takes the call to holiness that is in here. And this is the call for us as the people of God to put on holiness. Where is it in your life that you're continuing to nurture patterns of sin? Well, no, I can't say that. Sounds too much like a Bob Newhart. I was going to say, stop doing that. Bring it before the cross. Bring it before the cross. Don't be content with it. Now, the main point. That sub, here's the main point for us. Holiness is a gift. God didn't say, here's my law, do your best, and we'll call it even. God gave the tabernacle. God reestablished holy ground. He appointed the priesthood. He gave His one and only Son, and He gives holiness to all who will believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives holiness away. He extends it. So whether you've been a Christian for 35 years or you're not a Christian yet, you feel guilty? You are guilty? You feel defiled and ugly? You feel burdened by the weight of your own sin? You feel trapped in sin? You feel defeated? There is a sign written with the blood of Jesus Christ over the gate of heaven. And what it says is welcome. Y'all come in. Come, sinners. Come, you who have no money. Come, you who are thirsty. Come, you who are hungry. Come, all you who are heavy laden and burdened. It's written in big letters now. The gates are open. The veil's torn. The Savior's come. And He bids us to come into the presence. Welcome. Welcome to all who will acknowledge sin, who will confess guilt, who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thus find forgiveness. And we come in and we worship the Lord with a clear conscience a conscience cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and through Jesus, we do that which is the call at the beginning of the call to worship. We worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Let's pray together.